Welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your hosts, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. You're listening to Latin Ways. I'm your host, Sylvia Richardson. I am delighted to be joined by Yves Engler. He's a political activist and a prolific author. His latest book is titled House of Mirrors, Justin Trudeau's Foreign Policy. Welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. When we think about Canada, most people would love to think of Canada as a peacemaker in the world. You know, there's a lot of um, places where people used to pretend not to be an American and they would say, I'm a Canadian, and as if that somehow would get him a special treatment because they weren't seen as a warmonger or as a country that goes out and colonizes other lands. Yet, here in Canada, the Wazuatan people are revealing a different side. Can we talk a little bit about this double image and the reality of how we, how our policies impact the world and what our real practices? The reality of Canadian foreign policy is, is that it has always been about uh, advancing uh, empire, historically British, uh, today American and advancing Canadian corporate interests. The dispossession of uh, First Nations, Indigenous people on Turtle Island is really the, you know, Canada was the extension of the British Empire in that whole process of uh, dispossession. So you could uh, link the, you know, Canadian foreign policy as just a, you know, an extension of that uh, colonial uh, uh, process. Now, there's some people who seem to acknowledge that, um, Canada has uh, um, dispossessed Indigenous people and its you know, uh, colonial uh, structure, but tend to, to basically believe that when it comes to its relations to the rest of the world, that it's, uh, it's a benevolent uh, force. And there is an absolute abundance of evidence um, suggesting uh, that is not the case. And you can go back uh, um, this, uh, you know, so many different examples I could put forward. You can go back to the late 1800s of Canadians helping the British colonize different parts of Africa. You could take a look at um, Canadian uh, corporations role in dominating the uh, biggest company in Brazil in the 1920s and um, very much working, working against uh, uh, Brazilians' effort to take control of their economy and supporting fascistic forces in Brazil. And you could um, take an example of Canadian gunboats being sent to Costa Rica in 1920s, early 1920s, to uh, force the government to pay an odious debt to uh, Canadian banks and, and, and on and on and on. And uh, my, the, my latest book, it shows how, um, despite the rhetoric, um, Justin Trudeau's government has very much uh, continued a foreign policy of, uh, of that a lot of people criticize under under Stephen Harper, um, which is again really the thrust of the policies, but being driven by two forces: supporting empire, um, American historically British, today American, and supporting Canadian corporate interests. Overwhelmingly, that's what drives policy. Um, all this discussion about human rights, about uh, a uh, feminist uh, international policy or Canada being back or all these different things that the uh, Trudeau government has put forward are, are really just uh, window dressing. 
What are some of the instruments that are used to create this version of reality that hides, um, you know, what is really happening on the ground? Uh, can we talk about the political and juridical instruments that I use to create this? And, and I'm referring in particular about how Canada has been so directly involved in, for instance, the case of Haiti, where the country literally is run by NGOs. And, and so this, not, you know, this non-governmental humanitarian, um, you know, practice, it's sort of channel and, and and yet you know we, we we think we're being good we're we're humanitarians but um, we've seen that after since the earthquake in 2010 you know when cholera infected more than 800,000 people and killed thousands you know uh, we still see people today living in camps and 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 so Canada has a role in terms of how we make things invisible in some areas can we talk a little bit about uh, that particular example and then perhaps um, how that has affected our perception of what Canada is doing in Latin America yeah well I mean in, in the case of Haiti Canada helped overthrow elected government in 2004 uh, supported a dictatorship that killed thousands of people. Um, Canadian troops were part of that. Canadian diplomats helped build the coalition, the U.S., France, Canada, that perpetrated the coup um, uh, in response to the earthquake Canada sent in 2010. Canada's response was to militarize the situation and to, to be scared that the ousted president, the former president, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, who was then in exile in South Africa, that he would um, return in, in the political vacuum post-earthquake. And they sent 2,000 troops to Haiti after the earthquake alongside 10,000 U.S. troops to basically uh, control the country rather than to, to actually aid. And this has all actually been reported on um, through internal government documents, but but uh, that have been almost entirely uh, suppressed, uh, actually, in terms of getting into the question of how the mythology uh, works, there was actually a year after the earthquake, the Canadian press reported on these internal government documents that said that they were concerned about a popular revolt after the earthquake, and that's why Canadian troops were sent. But but the heavy urban search and rescue teams based in cities across the country weren't sent, and those heavy urban search and rescue teams are designed to you know get people out of under the rubble, provide basic medical care, etc. That Canadian press article, and I discuss this in my book, A Propaganda System. Uh, that Canadian Press article was only published um, in the Kamloops Daily News. So almost every newspaper across the country has the Canadian Press wire service. But they all decided it wasn't of, uh, of pertinence to uh, to explain why Canadian troops were sent after the earthquake. And and that's part of why you know Canadians are so uh, confused and and um, and uh, how the mythology works is that the dominant media is of course very uh, uh, subservient to the interests of power. And it takes uh, incredible amounts of effort. Um, you know, I think we're seeing some element of that with the Wissowetan uh, uh, struggle right now is that the, the mobilization forces takes weeks, months, you know, in this case, years of mobilization primarily indigenous and now expanding more, more broadly, uh, which basically over time forces the dominant media to start covering the issue with a, little, a certain degree of, of, of sensibility, a certain degree of uh, honesty. Um, but it takes incredible grassroots pressure um, to, to basically uh, force uh, some of the you know, basic facts about uh, the legality of the 
the uh, you know the, how the band council structure works and legality of the hereditary chiefs, etc. And some of the foreign policy issues where it's very removed from most people's daily lives. And there's not necessarily a constituency within this country that's that's uh, you know able to mobilize enforcing uh, um, the media to to provide some of the facts. And the dominant media just basically regurgitates what the uh, what the government says and uh, and and so so there's you know there's many facets to how that the the propaganda system works there's if you look at the think tanks and you look at the you know the military being the biggest public relations entity in the country um, so there's there's many facets to how that that sort of uh, uh, ideology uh, uh, works um, but the basic uh, point is that the the how the how the media covers um, uh, international issues uh, is very much correlated with the government's uh, desire, and that'd be the government of Canada and the government of Washington. And uh, you know, if, if a country is viewed as an enemy, so for instance, today we we see uh, there's been massive protests in Haiti over the past year and a half against the uh, totally illegitimate president, corrupt, repressive president of Jovenel Moise. Those protests receive very little media attention, um, whereas there's a lot of media attention devoted on the fact that the government in Venezuela is purportedly uh, undemocratic and repressive, et cetera, et cetera. Even though by any serious estimation, the government of Haiti is infinitely more repressive, infinitely less legitimate. But the media's perspective is very much uh, aligned with the with the government's position on on those two uh, on those two countries, and that extends across across the region. So if you take a look at at Chile, right? There's been major protests against the Piñera uh, government, largely against uh, inequality, and uh, the Canadian media has downplayed that. The Canadian government has has aligned with Piñera. You know, Canada has the the federal government has uh, you know aligned with that government of Piñera against the against the government of Venezuela, you know, against supposed repression of the Venezuelan government, while the uh, Chilean government has, you know, introduced martial law and a couple dozen people were killed. And so the double standards and the hypocrisy of the policy, when you take a when you take a wide lens view of Canada's policy in the hemisphere, um, you see very clearly that they're not seeking to advance. Um, human rights or democracy. They're often very much aligned with governments that are that are suppressing human rights and, and, and democracy. Um, um, but they're really trying to drive um, the interests of corporations and the interests of the U.S. empire. Now, if we were to take for a moment um, their, their word at face value, um, we can clearly see how, uh, as you point out, Jovenel Moise was elected with less than 10% of the voters, whereas in Venezuela... Um, Maduro got a majority, a very clear majority of the population who voted for him. So let's talk a little bit about the role of Canada in aiding the U.S.-led coup in Venezuela, uh, because it's been now a year since this attempted coup has taken place. A man by the name of Guaido declared himself the new president of um, of Venezuela, and immediately. You know, Canada was one among, you know, next to the states, uh, acknowledged this person as the legitimate president. Can we talk a little bit about what Canada's role has been in perpetuating the farce that this is not only legitimate, but also something that um, we should follow? 
the Trudeau government has been right at the forefront of this campaign. Uh, just this week, there was a meeting, the third of its kind, of the Lima group of group of countries that are opposed to Venezuela's uh, government that met in Ottawa. That Lima group for over a year now has been calling on the Venezuelan military to overthrow the Nicolas Maduro's uh, presidency. Canada has adopted sanctions, four rounds of sanctions against Venezuela. Canada has brought Venezuela to international criminal court. Venezuela, Canada has funded opposition groups in Venezuela. The uh, Canadian embassy has been shut down. They've basically broken up diplomatic relations. And uh, hundreds and hundreds of tweets, press statements, public comments by Canadian officials criticizing the Venezuelan government. Uh, so this is a really a brazen effort. Uh, they Canada was right at the center, uh, as you uh, mentioned, alluded to, with uh, uh, recognizing Juan Guaido and the whole process, behind-the-scenes process of consolidating the uh, Venezuelan opposition groups, uh, parties behind. Uh, the idea of Juan Guaido as, the, as uh, claiming uh, being the interim uh, president. So this is a really uh, a ferocious uh, uh, federal government uh, campaign. If you look at the 2018 election of Maduro, he actually got a higher, which was boycotted by the opposition, he still got a higher proportion of the vote than Justin Trudeau uh, got of, of the Canadian vote. You know, and, and if you look at questions of human rights, yes, there are human rights violations taking place in Venezuela, not even comparable to, you know, the 120 social movement activists assassinated in Colombia last year. That's, that's according to the UN. Um, this is detailed. This is this, on top of that, another 100 or so uh, former FARC members that were killed, and then, you know, all kinds of, you know, generalized uh, violence. So if you compare the, you know, or you take, compare the constitutional legitimacy between uh, Maduro and Canada's Lima Group ally in Honduras, well, Juan Orlando Hernandez in Honduras um, wasn't supposed to be able to run, according to the Honduran constitution, for a second term. And then when he was losing the vote after he was able to get the Supreme Court to, to accept his, his running in a second term in a very dubious uh, move, when he was losing the vote, then all of a sudden the vote count stops. And it, when it comes back on 36 hours later, he's, he's now leading. The constitutional legitimacy of Juan Orlando Hernandez in Honduras is infinitely less than Nicolas Maduro's constitutional legitimacy. And you can take other examples uh, you know, across the region of what they're claiming is their rationale for going after the Venezuelan government. It just doesn't hold up. It's totally, uh, utterly uh, hypocritical compared to their position to different uh, governments uh, in the region. But the Canadian government has doubled down and doubled down on this campaign to remove Venezuela's government. But the, the openness and the brazenness of this campaign against the Venezuelan government today is uh, uh, somewhat unique in the history of Canadian foreign policy. I think they believe they were going to force uh, Maduro out of office uh, last year. Uh, uh, they've clearly failed, but they're continuing to uh, pursue this campaign because there's basically no opposition, official opposition in this country. It's, you know, there's some marginal NDP MPs that put out a tweet here and there critical of Canada's uh, policy in Venezuela, but the dominant media goes along with it. There's, uh, you know, very little in terms of social movement uh, opposition. Um, and so from the Trudeau government's perspective, they uh, they don't see uh, they don't see much of a downside and and they have corporate interests backing them. The head of the Scotia Bank, um, when Juan Guaido was in, in Ottawa last uh, last month when he was being feted in Ottawa, and this should be noted, he was 
came did an international tour in large part because he he lost his domestic uh, credibility in that his basis for claiming to be the interim president is that the, he was the head of the National Assembly. Well, the only reason he was the head of the National Assembly because the four opposition parties had agreed to rotate the uh, the position among themselves. So he, he wasn't elected to be head of the National Assembly. He was just rotated in, uh, his party being the fourth party. He only has 8% of the vote of the opposition, being the extremist, hardline, right-wing element of the opposition. And when his term as head of the National Assembly, the year term, according to the, for, the rotation between the parties, came up. It was contested, and he's no longer officially the head of the National Assembly. So, so he lost his domestic, the, the, the thin domestic credibility he had to his claim as president of the country. Uh, he lost that, and so he went on to an international tour to try to you know, rejuvenate um, the uh, international support, which has always ultimately been what's you know what he really always had, and uh, and so that's why he was uh, 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 brought to uh, uh, brought to Ottawa and and, and feted in Ottawa, um, and and this this is this is uh, just part of this uh, you know remarkable open brazen Canadian campaign to uh, to decide who is the legitimate president of uh, Venezuela. Now I think it's important to note why Honduras uh, seems to be such a good partner for Canada, you know, in terms of Honduras, we've seen what mining companies have done in the country of Honduras, and Guatemala, El Salvador. But in the case of Honduras, we've seen how in the past nine years since the, you know, military coup that took Celaya uh, out of power in Honduras, the elected president, you know, there's been over 51,000 people assassinated, most of them 14 and 30 years old. Like the countries have just barely recovered from the dirty wars of the the 80s where dead squats were the order of the day for us. Um, so to me, the relationship between mining companies, between the way uh, Canada is forcing its will on the Wasabitan people, the way Canada is buying pipelines and forcing pipelines across areas that are unceded territory, um, seems to me to be in line with uh, what uh, is being uh, forced upon Latin American people in Venezuela. You know, they, the people there took over their petroleum and put it in the service of the people, and that is not tolerable, apparently, for corporations uh, abroad. Well, there is no doubt that, that you see with regards to Canadian policy vis-a-vis -vis, uh, First Nations and dispossession. The dispossession is designed to enable, I mean, obviously, very obviously in the case of the Wet'suwet'en struggle, uh, and today with the pipeline, it's designed to just simply uh, enable corporate expansion. But, but more broadly, uh, Canadian uh, colonialism and extractivism are something that are very uh, closely uh, um, interconnected. And globally, Canadian mining companies are the global dominant global players. And uh, throughout the hemisphere, um, more than $100 billion in Canadian mining uh, investment. Government um, you know, works to when companies have tax uh, uh, conflicts with the government. In the case of Mexico, a big tax controversy between Canadian mining companies and Mexican government a couple of years ago. Uh, the Canadian trade minister uh, you know, goes to bat for the Canadian companies. Canadian government has been involved in writing countries' mining codes 
most infamously in Colombia, to designed to lower royalty rates and open up uh, territories of indigenous Afro-Colombians, make it easier for mining companies to get in there. The Canadian government, in the case of Honduras in 2009, the coup in Honduras was in part because the Zelaya government wasn't um, uh, totally subservient to, uh, to foreign mining companies and some major Canadian mining companies um, were operating and, and actually even were busing people into the pro-coup uh, Vancouver-based uh, Gold Corps was even paying people to go demonstrate in favor of the coup against Alea. With Trudeau's policy, um, a, I think that part of the explanation for their uh, opposition to uh, the Venezuelan government is a real fear of a resource nationalism that the Canadian mining corporations have uh, in the hemisphere, particularly in, in Africa as, as well. Um, and they're, they're scared of, of governments that, that uh, increase royalty rates, uh, potentially nationalize uh, the projects, and in some cases, you know, would just local communities just don't want anything to do with the resources being taken out, and just keep it in the ground. Uh, don't uh, disturb our our way of life. And so, Canadian mining companies, of course, fear uh, governments that that will follow um, uh, local resistance and uh, to mining operations, and so they they want to you know quelch that, and so part of the the motivation uh, for ousting trying to oust Maduro's government in Venezuela is that there's opposition from mining sector. Similarly, in Bolivia, uh, one of the reasons for the hostility towards Evo Morales and Canada provided uh, some degree of support for that coup against Evo Morales uh, in November. Um, part of that is is uh, is that there was Morales government nationalized a Canadian mining operation after major local uh, resistance, indigenous resistance to the Canadian company. So the extractivist uh, element is is important part of foreign policy uh, in the hemisphere, but more broadly, uh, as I was mentioning with regards to Canadian banks, um, when Juan Guaido was here uh, a month ago, the head of Scotiabank wrote an op-ed in the National Post celebrating the Canadian government's policy of uh, trying to oust Venezuela's government and called on countries around the world to, to seize Venezuelan assets and to give it to what he referred to as the democratic opposition. So there's a strong push from corporate Canada. Uh, I think first and foremost, the mining sector. Uh, secondarily, the the banking sector, which is the most powerful sector of the Canadian economy, of pushing for a foreign policy that serves their interests. And uh, you see it um, starkly at you know, see, you see it pop up in stark waves uh, sometimes, but on a day-to-day basis, most of what the Canadian Embassy, Canadian High Commissions do around the world is advance the interests of Canadian corporations. That's most of what um, goes on. You can take something like the, the, the Trade Commissioner Service, uh, which has thousands, I think it's like 1,600 employees. Um, that's what their, their whole job is is to just advance Canadian corporate interests abroad. They're based at chain embassies all around the world. They have trade missions and human rights, uh, indigenous rights, uh, things like that. So they put very, very little value um, to uh, to those interests. Uh, it's really about uh, um, serving the corporations. Your book, House of Mirrors, touches not only on 
you know, the nefarious uh, nature of our foreign policy, uh, but also gives us a historical account of colonization uh, in the 21st century. Can we talk a little bit about your, your book and why you took on this project? It flows from um, previous books about Canadian foreign policy that I've done. I've done eight books on Canadian foreign policy. And um, the double uh, standard between what the Trudeau government says and the reality of the policies are uh, are stark. And I think it's really important uh, to point those out. I've obviously written lots of articles critical of Trudeau government policy. But I think there's sometimes it's important to to take a look at things holistically. It's, sometimes people will say, well, okay, they just did that policy in Bolivia, sort of oh, happenstance that they, they you know, supported the campaign against the Bolivian government, but that was just to, you know, maybe they didn't really know exactly what they were doing or, or you know, sort of kind of explain it away as a sort of one-off. But when you look at it systematically and you look at what they're doing in Bolivia and Colombia and Chile and Venezuela and Nicaragua, uh, and then you go, go go global, and then okay, well then they're allying with this uh, very uh, repressive uh, dictatorship in Rwanda, and then you look at go, oh, well, well they're following uh, this aggressive uh, policy in the Ukraine, where they're uh, effectively supporting these far right, uh, often neo Nazi type. Uh, forces. They're working in so many different ways to advance Canadian mining interests. Well, when you look at it holistically, you you see that you know the rhetoric doesn't hold up uh, often. You know directly in looking at one issue specifically, but when you take it look at it holistically, the rhetoric of being about you know, feminist internationalism or the international rules-based order or human rights, which is a different rhetoric that the Trudeau government pushes, um, it just collapses. And I think that it, it's important that, uh, you know, when you're engaged in some of these issues about challenging Canadian foreign policy, we've got to be honest with ourselves. This is something that's that's very much marginalized. There's, there's not a lot of, even on the left, there's not a lot of activism uh, taking place on these issues, there's a, there's a certain amount of intellectual interest, uh, but even that is is often you know not not that significant. Um, so what happens? People get demoralized. People people feel oh it's not not we're not being successful. It's not it's not working. But it's important to keep fighting and to keep pushing back. And so it so it may feel that like the you know this Trudeau uh, juggernaut is just uh, is too much, and it's like oh it's even worse. The, the conservatives are even worse, and so oh let's just sort of concede to accept this Trudeau um, slightly less bad foreign policy and you know for that matter domestic many elements of the domestic policy as well. Um, but it's important to to uh, to keep challenging. So to me, this is, you know, this is obviously uh, writing a book is an intellectual endeavor, but this is part of a, of activism of, of trying to build uh, anti-war movements, trying to build international solidarity activism, mining and justice struggles. You know, there are these, are there are these groups cross country engaged in some of these things. And I think that one of the things that a book like this can do, and also the tour that I'll do around it, it helps to uh, to build those t- that type of activism um, and provide a little pushback to the uh, to the Trudeau uh, uh, juggernaut. The book comes out next week. Tell our audience how they connect with your tour and where will you be touring first, or how how will it unfold? 
if people are interested in purchasing the book, it's uh, Black Rose Books. You can purchase it directly from the publisher. It should also be at the different uh, bookstores and, and uh, online. Uh, from the standpoint of the tour, I'm going to begin actually an event in Ottawa on February 27th, a couple of events in Montreal, um, in Southern Ontario, then I'll be out in the West Coast. Um, first event in Vancouver on March 22nd, the Sunday night, 6.30. All the details are on my website, uh, eveengler.com. Uh, Y-D-E-S-E-N-G-L-E-R.com and uh, it would be great if, uh, if people uh, come out. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. We've come to the end of our show Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an internationally syndicated weekly program made available through campus and community stations and available out to the world at www.latinwavesmedia.com Visit Latin Waves Media to hear previous shows to access resources or support our efforts towards social change via community project engagement. Thank you and bye for now.